Today we're going to be continuing in our series, One Story, where we're looking at the reality that the entire Bible really cohesively does tell one story, and that is the story of Jesus. You know, one of the techniques that's often used in literature and in cinema is the technique of foreshadowing. Foreshadowing is the idea where you introduce an idea earlier in the story that really points to something that comes later in the story and is fulfilled later in the story. One of my favorite movie trilogies or movie series is the Back to the Future movies. I love Back to the Future. I could watch it over and over and over again and never get tired of it. In fact, all I have to do is hear this. <laughs> it's coming. You're feeling it, aren't you? A little heart bumping. The kid inside of me just wants to sit down and watch the movies. Yeah, it's nostalgic. It feels good. We enjoy it. And, and in these movies, there's a classic, there's always these foreshadowing things going on. So in the second movie, there's a scene where Marty, uh, do I have to tell you he's the main character? I mean, you guys know who Marty is, right? All right, Marty, the main character, he walks in on Biff. Biff is his enemy, right? And Biff is watching the classic Western, A Fistful of Dollars, right? And so it's a scene in A Fistful of Dollars where Clint Eastwood comes out, and he comes out to have a shootout in the street, and he's wearing this poncho, but underneath the poncho is a steel plate. And, of course, he has a shootout in the street, and Clint Eastwood is fine, and he pulls the poncho apart, and there's the steel plate. And Biff, Biff goes, that's brilliant. All right, cool. Then in the third movie, which is set in the Old West, there's a scene where Marty has to do a shootout in the street with Biff's great-grandfather, and, of course, Marty puts the steel plate on. He comes out with the poncho, and, you know, he's safe and everything. And you go, oh, yeah, okay, that's what that fistful of dollars scene was about. It reminds you that, oh, yeah, Biff was watching that, and it ties it all together. Well, that kind of foreshadowing also happens in the Bible. We see things in the Old Testament that are interesting but all of a sudden make a lot more sense when we see it fulfilled later on in the story. And that's the case with the story that we find in Genesis chapter 22. It's a story of Abraham being commanded by God to sacrifice his son, Isaac. It's this odd story. And on its own, when we read it, it's, it's one of those stories that makes us go, what the heck is that about? That just seems like, that doesn't seem like something God would do. That's weird. What is that about? But then when we see it fulfilled later on in the Bible and the story, we go, oh, oh, okay, that makes a lot more sense now. So as we've talked about in this series, the Bible, while it's made up of 66 books, is really one cohesive story that tells one story, and that is the story of Jesus. It is a story of God's redemption of humanity and ultimately the entire earth. And that story, after some preliminary material that needs to be kind of said to kind of introduce the problem, that story properly begins with a man named Abram. Now, Abram was a man who God called to say, I, I want you to go into a land that you don't know, 
And actually, it's going to be the land that your descendants, which will be the Israelite nation, will inhabit. And so he tells Abram, Abram that he will make of him a great nation and that all the peoples on earth will be blessed through him. And so God makes a solemn covenant with Abram. In fact, he renames him Abraham, which means father of many. And so he makes this solemn covenant with Abraham and he gives him this promised child, Isaac. So the stage is set. Everything in the Bible up until then is important, but it's really kind of the background information that sets the stage for God's solution to the problem of sin. And it starts properly with Abram. And when you read this, read this story and you read the, the covenants that God makes with Abram, you get the sense of the importance of this moment. It's like this great story is about to unfold and it starts with Abraham and his son, Isaac. So as we look at this story, I'm gonna ask you to pray with me as we seek God's wisdom and guidance. Lord, as we approach this story, I gotta admit it's a story that you know, when I first read it, it was one of those things like, what, what is this about? Um, and, and I just pray, Father, that you would give us clarity. You, you, you created this story. You did this in reality for a purpose. And that purpose still rings true today. And so I pray that you would help us to understand it, help us to see with bigger eyes, help us to see with your eyes and what that means for us. Amen. So we are going to just kind of work through this story in Genesis chapter 22, um, and, and we're just going to kind of pause along the way as we go through the story to highlight some different things. So starting right in Genesis chapter 22 with verse 1, it says, sometime later, so sometime later is after all the preliminary material, the stage has been set, the covenants have been made, Isaac has been born. So sometime later, it says, God tested Abraham. Okay, so... God is initiating his plan here, and he puts Abraham to the test. And it's not a test to see if, you know, if he picked the right guy, if Abram's the right guy, or if he's up to the task. It's really a test to teach Abraham, to kind of mold him and shape him and prepare him to build his faith. And so it says, he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. So far, so good. Abraham is ready He's available. He's attentive to God. Then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. And this is the point in the story where we go, wait, what? Did, did God just say sacrifice your son? What, what is going on here? I mean, that doesn't sound like the God that we know. So let's pause, and we're going to take a, take a moment here and take a look at what's going on because there is so much packed into this one little verse here. Jewish rabbinic tradition would have read this verse as kind of a conversation between God and Abraham. And, and so they would have read it kind of like this, where God says, take your son. Abraham might have said, which son? I have two, which in effect is true, uh, Prior to Isaac being born, God had promised Abraham and Sarah a son, Isaac, but they got impatient. And Sarah said, Abraham, 
go in to my handmaiden, Hagar, and have a child with her, and that child will be our child. It'll be counted to us. So he did, and, and they had Ishmael. Um, but Ishmael wasn't, wasn't in the story at this point. He'd been sent off, so Isaac was his only son. But take your son. Well, which son? I have two. God says, your only son. Abram might have said, well, each is the only son of his mother, which again is true. But the covenant had been made about Abraham and Isaac. Ishmael wasn't part of the covenant. So in effect, Isaac was his only son. So God reinforces the one whom you love. Is there any limit to a father's love? Isaac. It's almost like you can feel the knife digging in further and further with each each statement in this verse. Every phrase, take your son, your only son, the one whom you love, Isaac, sacrifice him as a burnt offering. We can only imagine what that would have felt like. You know, child sacrifice was a fairly common practice amongst the Canaanite religions around Abraham at the time. But Abraham's God was supposed to be different. And so we can imagine the internal wrestling that Abraham might have done with this command. You know, can this truly be? My son, this child that was promised to me, through whom my lineage is supposed to be as numerous as the stars, is to be sacrificed? It can't be. But there's actually no indication in the scripture of that internal wrestling. We read that into it because... Quite frankly, that would be my response. I think we we can all resonate with that. But that's not Abraham's response. Abraham's response is faith. Interesting, this verse 2 where it says, take your son. Actually, it should say, take now your son. Some English translations translate it that way. The NIV leaves that word out. um, And some other translations do. But there's actually a word in there, the Hebrew word na. The Hebrew word na is sometimes translated as now, but it's also translated as please. In fact, it's used in modern day Hebrew to convey politeness. And so this take now your son. God is beseeching Abraham because he knows that what he is asking of him will be for Abraham's good. He wants to grow Abraham's faith and reliance upon him. And so this now or this please reaffirms that he is inviting Abraham into something good. And Abraham already has experiences of God's faithfulness and goodness. This isn't the first time that God had called him into something that didn't quite make sense. You remember, we said God called Abraham out of his homeland into a foreign place. God promised Abraham and Isaac in their old age a child. Such a ludicrous thing that Sarah even laughed at it. But God proved himself to be faithful. And so Abraham had plenty of experience learning to trust God. And God actually does prove himself to be different than the Canaanite gods. And it's Abraham's faithfulness in that difference, which we're going to see, that enables him to, be, to remain obedient. But already in this second verse, we see some powerful foreshadowing. 
It says, take your son, your only son. Someone else, later on in Scripture, is called the one and only son in John 3.16. It says, the one whom you love. Someone else is later called my son whom I love with whom I am well pleased in Matthew chapter 3. God says, take him to the land of Moriah to a place I will show you. Moriah is only mentioned twice in the Bible. It's mentioned here and it's mentioned in 2 Chronicles where Solomon is commanded to build the temple in Jerusalem. Could it be that the hill where Abraham is commanded to sacrifice Isaac is the very same place upon which Jesus is eventually crucified? Just this incredible command to sacrifice his only son whom he loves, the unthinkable foreshadows the incredible sacrifice that God will make on our behalf. Let's read on. Verse 3, early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, imagine cutting the wood that would be used to sacrifice your child. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. And here's faith in action. Abraham gets up early in the morning. He doesn't hesitate. He goes immediately. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. You know, when I was younger and I read this story, I I often read into this verse that Abraham was lying to his servants. You know, that he had accepted what God had said. He accepted his fate. He accepted what was going on. He was going to follow through with it, but he was just kind of smoothing things off over. He, was, he didn't want to raise any alarm bells, and so he, he kind of gave this little white lie to, the, to his servants. But that's not actually the case. This is actual faith. Abraham believed 100% that he and the boy would return. Hebrews chapter 11 says, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so, in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Abraham was ready to be obedient even to the point of actually putting the knife in his son's body, believing that God would do the impossible. See, his his logic train was, number one, God had made him a promise that through Isaac he would have descendants. Number two, God commanded that he sacrifice Isaac. Therefore, God must be planning to raise Isaac from the dead. Just logical. In order for God to be able to do all those things, he was going to do the impossible. My mother used to tell me a story when I was a young child, about three or four. Um, We were walking on a summer day, and I had an ice cream cone. 
And we were walking with the ice cream cone, and these bees started coming around, attracted to the ice cream. And she says, what I did was I just stopped in my tracks, closed my eyes, and said, please, God, keep the bees away from my ice cream, opened my eyes, and kept confidently walking with the ice cream cone. That kind of faith we see in children. You know, children have this blind faith. We tend to complicate our faith as adults, but this is the kind of faith that Abraham was showing here. He was 100% confident that God would do something incredible. Abraham had to learn the difference between trusting the promise and trusting the promiser. You know, we can often put God's promises before him and then feel like it's our responsibility to make the promise happen or to protect the promise. And I've had to think of how often in my own life I've been guilty of, of kind of putting the promise before the promiser, of, of protecting the promise, trying to make it happen instead of trusting the promiser. God promises that if we commit our ways to him, if we follow after him, he's going to take care of our needs. But how often in my life have I said, God, you could be providing a little bit more. And then I get these crazy thoughts about how I can make more money or maybe I need to switch jobs or whatever. And they're, they're, they're not rational thoughts in the sense of what God's plan is for me. But it's my attempts to try and make the promise happen instead of trusting the promiser. And God has always proved himself to be faithful in the end. And so trust the promiser no matter what. Even if it feels like things aren't quite happening, Trust the promiser. And let me point out here as well. It's not as if Abraham, it's not as if anybody had been raised from the dead up until this point in the Bible. That hadn't happened yet. It's not like Abraham could say, well, you know, God raised Jimmy and Ralph and Joe from the dead, so he'll probably raise Isaac from the dead. It had, he was trusting and believing that God would do something that had never been done before. Which also points us to Jesus. You see, when God, when Jesus raised himself from the dead, when God raised Jesus from the dead, it was something that had never been done before. Yes, there had been people who were raised from the dead, like Lazarus before, but never in the way that Jesus was raised. Jesus was raised in an eternal, glorified, resurrected body. He was the first. It had never been done before. Well, verse five, uh, 6, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. Jesus also carried the wood. In fact, first century rabbis who had no connection to Christianity but had plenty of experience with Roman crucifixion said of this detail, Isaac carries the wood for the sacrifice like one who carries his own cross. And so Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife, and the two of them went on together. Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. Now this yes, my son, is actually the same phrase as what Abraham used earlier, here I am, to God. It's translated differently, but it's basically, it's the same phrase. And so Abraham, or Isaac says, Father, and he says, here I am, son. He is attentive to the son as he was to the father. And I, I think about Jesus in the garden before he was captured and crucified and he's praying and pouring out his heart to God, the father. 
And how attentive the father must have been to the son. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Whoa. Capture the significance of this statement. And this is like a mic drop statement here. Abraham is 100% convinced that God will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. God provides the lamb. God provides the sacrifice. It is God who works on our behalf. Everything for our salvation is from him. It just continually blows me away how this story in Genesis so clearly points to Jesus. And it says, and the two of them went on together. Literally, this phrase means that they went in agreement. And so we have this remarkable picture of the work of Jesus at the cross hundreds of years before it happened. We see the son of promise, Isaac, we see the son of promise, he willingly went to be sacrificed in obedience to his father, carrying the wood of the sacrifice up the hill, all with full confidence in the promise of resurrection. And it says, when they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. God's plan of redemption starts with this one man. He needs to test him to grow his faith. Abraham and his descendants are the means by which God has chosen to bless the world. And Abraham, quite frankly, hasn't always proven up to the task. There have been some problems along the way. There's a story earlier before they had children where Abraham and Sarah had to go down to Egypt. And because Sarah was such a beautiful woman, he was afraid that, that, that they would kill him and take her. And so he, he passed her off as his sister instead of his wife. So, so he, he wasn't faithful there. And then the whole Ishmael story again, where God promised them a child and out of impatience, they went and took matters into their own hands and had Ishmael. So Abraham hadn't always proved himself to be up to the task. So now God needed to know whether Abraham was willing to give up the thing most precious to him in all the world for the sake of being faithful to the God who gave it to him in the first place. God doesn't want us to just say that we trust him. He wants us to show it in our actions. He doesn't want to just hear that we're obedient. He wants to experience our obedience. And verse 13 says, Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. Now, it would have made sense in the story 
if the angel had said, okay, Abram, we get it, you're good. You, you, you passed the test, so you guys just pack up, go back down the mountain. Why did they still need to have a sacrifice? They could have just done without that. There still needed to be a sacrifice. It's not enough that God says, I love you and I forgive you. There still has to be atonement for sin. Blood still needs to atone for sin. There still had to be sacrifice, but God provides the sacrifice. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. And so the story ends with the promise of the very thing it is intended to foreshadow, the blessing of all nations through Abraham's descendant, Jesus. You notice that verse 18, it says, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. Galatians 3 says of that verse, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed or to his offspring. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. And so that verse, through your offspring, all nations will be on earth will be blessed, is pointing again to Jesus. And so as we read this story, we see Isaac's life as a picture of Jesus. Both were loved by their father. Both offered themselves willingly. Both carried the wood up the hill of sacrifice. Both were sacrificed on the same hill. And both were delivered from death on the third day. I don't know if you caught that earlier in the story where Abraham is given the command to sacrifice his son Isaac, which in effect, with that command, was the death of Isaac. And it was a three-day journey to Moriah where he was ultimately given back. Now, if you just read this story on its own, it's an incredible story of faith. We can have a lot to learn from that. I mean, if I just had a, a sliver of the amount of faith that Abraham had, I'd be doing better in my relationship with God than I am now. And God calls us into this incredible journey with him where he wants to have us completely rely on him to grow our faith, to grow our trust in him, and to experience that relationship with him on that journey. But if we read this story in light of the story of Jesus, we see this incredible cohesiveness to the Bible. It's not just a random collection of stories that ends up with the story of Jesus. No, it is one story that points to Jesus from the very beginning. We see our eyes are opened up to God's mystery, to what he has planned for us and how he plans to redeem us 
And it just continually blows me away. And we look at this odd story about Abraham and Isaac and realize that it was always about Jesus from the very beginning. But what does that mean to you? What does it mean to you that everything in the Bible points to what God had ultimately planned to do through Jesus? What does it mean to you that God had this incredible plan from the beginning to redeem us, to cover our sin, and to give us new life? What does that mean? Like, if you're not sure what that means, if you're not sure what that means for you, I would love to talk to you about that. Pastor Matt would love to talk to you about that. Nick would love to talk to you about that. Any of us would love to talk to you about that. If you go from this place today saying, I'm not really sure what that means, please, please don't leave that question out in the air. If you, if you can say, I know what that means. I rejoice in that. Praise God. Everything is about Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, I am so grateful. I am so grateful for the incredible plan that you put into action so long ago to save each and every one of us, to give us new life, to give us a hope and a future and a promise. You truly are a good, good father who loves us so incredibly much. And I pray, Lord, I pray that we would take that to heart and truly, truly give you thanks. In your name, amen.